Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, an exceptional new coffee company that blends the best of what is old with the best of what is new, using cutting-edge technology to preserve and deliver specialty coffee in its purest, most original form. Cometeer is the perfect metaphor for how tradition and modernity might elevate one another. I'm here with Teresa Bejan, an Oxford professor of political theory, the author of Mere Civility, which is a terrific book on civil disagreement um, and uncivil disagreement, <laughs> um, and a book that argues for the importance of not just debate, but also of passionate disagreement and passionate conflict as constitutive and important for uh, modern life in a liberal democracy. She's a very thoughtful person, and I'm delighted to have her. What's at stake for you personally in the question of civility? It's a great question, I have to say. It's not one that I'm often asked, so um, it's exciting to really think about. Um, I often joke to my own PhD students that dissertations are exercises in autobiography. <laughs> I think I think it's true. I think the my first book on civility, which came out of my PhD dissertation, was an attempt to really work out my own feelings of discomfort and often a kind of profound depression about um, the state of political debate kind of in the country, but also just on on my particular university campus and, and a persistent feeling of um, not always sort of agreeing with those around me and kind of not feeling particularly at home. Uh, I, I suppose I was very sensitive to sort of two things that I identify in the book. So one being the disagreeableness of disagreement. So the fact that just any disagreement in itself can be unpleasant. Um, and the flip side of that, kind of the um, the agreeableness of, of, of conversations with the like-minded. It's nice to agree. Um, so the reason, you know, the idea that disagreeable is a synonym for unpleasant or agreeable is a synonym for pleasant, that's not, that's not an accident. And uh, yeah, so I, I was trying to make sense of my own experiences. Um, and then seeing similar concerns reflected in the historical text that I was reading. Do you think you're concern with civility preceded your concern with political theory or political philosophy? Or was there something else that drew you to political philosophy first, and then civility was a sort of a rabbit hole you went down afterwards? So th I have an answer to that question, but actually, I might then want to call into question my own answer. So, th so the answer would be no, my interest in civility postdated my interest in political philosophy and the history of political thought. I remember really distinctly applying for PhD programs, knowing that I wanted to work on early modern political thought, specifically you know, early modern English political thought. I had a mind to write on Locke. Um, initially, I thought that I wanted to write on his educational works um, and sort of decided against that for, for a number of reasons. And I remember coming on the onto the topic of civility as a, as a kind of wonderful discovery. Oh, wait, actually, this this is an issue that unites many of the early modern thinkers I'm interested in. And it's also one that um, 
it seems to me coming up now in really interesting ways. So I remember having that feeling of, oh, this is really serendipitous. I'm like, I found, I found something I can talk about and that's going to allow me to talk about the people I want to talk about. But when I say then, you know, to complicate that answer, you know, to refer back to the first answer I gave you, yeah, I also think that um, this profound sense of kind of disconnect, discomfort, um, feeling not altogether like-minded with my peers um, meant that I was already sort of trying to work out something in my own life that then, you know, cohered really nicely with the text that I was reading. And, and I mean, and, and to be honest, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, I can now sort of say, well, one of the reasons I was attracted to early modern English political thought was precisely um, thinkers like Hobbes, Locke, or, you know, my favorite Roger Williams are really, um, re- I think, really sort of uh, sophisticated moral psychologists. I think that they they are aware about sort of dynamics of believing and belonging in a way that, um, and so those are kind of on the table explicitly in, in, in ways that maybe um, they're not in thinkers from other eras. What about political philosophy in general or philosophy in general? Was that always the path for you? Or was there something specifically in your life that sort of made you feel this is what I want to do? I want to be a professor of philosophy. I want to be a scholar of, you know, these questions. What do you attribute that to? One thing to say is that although I'm the, you know, first and only political philosopher, political theorist in my family, certain life, certainly my family has always been really interested in political questions. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that um, my father uh, is Romanian. He he came to the States in 1969. Growing up, there was always this uh, profound awareness that life was otherwise elsewhere. Um, so we never took for granted the, um, the, you know, the way of life, the sort of comfortable existence that we had in the United States because we were sending care packages back to family in Romania with, you know, dial soap and sewing needles um, because of shortages. I mean, I mean, I really fell in love with political thought in my freshman year at the University of Chicago when I did one of these, um, one of these core seminars on classics of social and political thought. And it was just a wonderful group of people, many of whom I'm still friends with today. Um, and I should say that, you know, my first year of college was a long time ago now. Uh, so we're still friends and uh, and just a really wonderful teacher, uh, uh, Eric McGilvray, who's now a professor at Ohio State, which is a really magical seminar. And I think, you know, I would have been hard pressed not to fall in love with it. Um, but the final point just about becoming a professor of this, I mean, it's one thing to be interested in a subject area. It's one thing to be in love with a particular way of thinking. Um, but to pursue it as a career, well... You know, if you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have said, oh, well, you know, I just uh, sort of fell into it. I mean, now with the benefit of hindsight, again, I can say, well, look, you know, I'm the child of an academic. My, my father's a professor. Uh, he's a professor in a very different field. Um, he's in the sciences. But uh, certainly, you know, in, in a way, I've gone into the family business. When we were growing up, um, he would always really drill into us that even in communist Romania, the title of professor meant something. Right. So this was the one kind of title that could could persist in a very different society, a different way of viewing the world. If you couldn't be a professor, if if for whatever reason that path wasn't available, what do you think? What are the what's the alternative life of Teresa Bijan in which you're expressing the questions that you care about and doing the good work you you believe in, but not through the channel of an Oxford professor? What does that look like? 
when I was on the job market myself, I remember asking this question and sort of saying, well, you know, maybe if this whole academia thing doesn't work out, maybe I'll go into wine. I like wine. I like to drink. Uh, let's yes, I thought, you know, maybe I could think about being like a wine buyer or something. Um, not anything I have real professional experience with, but I, I guess that gives you the sense that, you know, it, no matter what fields I'm in, I know that I'd be interested in the kinds of questions I'm interested in and, you know, having conversations. And it's, um, this is kind of what I try to communicate to students. I, you know, it, you don't do a PhD these days to get a job in the academy. You you really should only do a PhD if you, you know, can think of no better way than to spend the next three to six years than, you know, thinking and reading um, with and against really good books. And you can continue to do that even if you're not being paid to do it. So yeah, I don't know if it would still be wine, but I think I'd probably want to do something pretty orthogonal to uh, what I'm doing. So Leo Strauss, oh, actually on the wine topic, so Rashi, the uh, 12th century uh, Jewish commentator on the Bible and the Talmud was uh, from a family of winemakers, I believe. So there's there's some precedent for, for scholars who are engaged with wine. There's probably what to, to think about there. Maybe civility is the floor and conviviality is the ceiling. So you, you wrote a book on uh, what what the bare minimum is that we can hope for, but obviously that's not a, a fulfilling life at the personal or local level. And so wine is on the aspirational side of the good life. What do you think of that? Oh, I, I, I like that very much. I, I, I think that um, that's definitely right. You know, in, in terms of my sort of public program that the argument of my of my first book on civility was precisely yeah I mean civility is really important um but mere civility is as you say it's a floor not a ceiling um and we need to be careful not to define civility uh relative to more demanding kind of uh conversational expectations or norms but right as you indicate that that's not therefore to say that the other ones aren't also important um, and really crucial to cultivate in in communities that are smaller than and different than the community of civil society as such. And yeah, precisely. I mean, one of the things that really interests me about seminars or, you know, just different kinds of academic events generally is, yeah, how do you cultivate a kind of intellectual community in which all members are on, even if they don't have equal knowledge or nevertheless on an equal footing? And I think um, a symposium is a great example where, you know, you're sharing in something, which is the text, but you're also sharing in something, which is the wine. And it's that kind of sharing. It's the the, the shared thing that's the basis of community. There's a lot in that. Uh, just returning to Strauss for a second. So in that essay on political philosophy, he may, he opens, I think, with a claim that you can't really divorce political philosophy from philosophy in general, that sort of every question you ask is connected to every other question you could ask philosophically. And at the heart of that is what is knowledge? What differentiates knowledge from opinion? And as I understand Strauss, and I'm happy for a different take, but I think he ends up somewhat skeptical that we can really distinguish knowledge from opinion. We should try. But if philosophy could solve that, if it could really know what knowledge is, it would no longer be philosophy. It would no longer be the love of wisdom, the search for wisdom. It would be theory, or it would be sectarianism. Uh, it would be, if you will, religion. And so philosophy is in this weird position of positing that there are 
answers or goals we can aspire to, but then at the same time de depriving us of those answers. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I feel like I should say as a parenthetical here, Zohar, that I'm, it's not often that I have an opportunity to talk about Strauss now that I'm, that I'm a professor in, in the United Kingdom. He's not, not really... <laughs> He's not really on the agenda here. He's not really a part of the conversation in the way that he was um, in some of the programs I came up in in, in North America. So, um, yeah, I, I one of the reasons I, I, I like sh giving Strauss to students and like that essay in particular is just the important point about, you know, any kind of knowledge of politics is predicated ultimately on a, on a quest for knowledge about the whole. Um, and as you say, there's a kind of skepticism about the possibility of actually having true knowledge of the whole. Nevertheless, skepticism is itself not a kind of final resting place, because nevertheless, we, we the, the, you know, it's, it's the journey, not the destination, if you will. There's a kind of, um, nevertheless, we persist in our quest to know, and that, that it, you know, and that's really the point. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the reasons, I'm not a Straussian, um, I guess it's the most Straussian thing I could say. I am not a Straussian, but, but I mean, I, so I'm not, you know, there are plenty of things that, um, you know, plenty of ways in which I sort of disagree with, you know, Leo Strauss and, and people sort of working in a Straussian vein on particular texts, but nevertheless, I'm really, um, very much a fellow traveler when it comes to pedagogy. Um, because I think that there's a way in which, um, the Straussian approach, you know, really is, seductive in a good way because it, it works to the kind of erotic dimension of education and then it sort of takes seriously there's you know look the subject matter here is serious weighty and important and its meeting is nevertheless somewhat elusive so this is kind of hard work that repays um close and often passionate attention and I think that um that's very often what students need to hear that look this is this is serious and um and we can take it seriously together do you think that more people should take great texts and great ideas seriously? Or do you think that maybe per some readings of Strauss, it's really an elite endeavor for a specific class of people? We can call those people philosophers, but the average Joe doesn't need to read Aristotle or Locke, and we shouldn't impose that upon that person. So I have a lot of thoughts on, on, on this question. It's a matter of approach rather than, um, than um, you know, just a simple question of whether or not, you know, people should should be reading great books or not reading great books. I mean, yeah, I think people should re read great books and I think we can be expansive about how we categorize a great book. But um, in terms of this special pursuit that is the reading of classic texts in a kind of open-ended way, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a different sort of thing. And it goes to precisely to your second question, which is like clearly that way of approaching great books and especially in community with others is a rather resource intensive <laughs> pursuit, right? It's something absolutely we can do alone at home with, um, you know, paperback editions, but um, really a lot of texts are difficult and they need to be opened up for a student by a teacher. I mean, I was really blessed to have excellent teachers. Nevertheless, you know, I had no idea what to make of Plato's Republic or Aristotle's politics until I taught them, you know, six, seven, eight, nine times, right? So th these books are really difficult. So, to, I mean, go back to kind of the Straussian view, well, this is actually a necessarily elite pursuit. I suppose I want to say yes and yes 
it's a research intensive undertaking. Um, it's basically a, a luxury activity. I mean, I go back to the Greek uh, word for leisure, which is skole. Right? <laughs> it's a leisure activity in the sense of um, it's not productive uh, economically to do this. Um, so basically we're saying that society should support this kind of leisure activity for you know, certain people. And then the question is, okay, well, which people? And my view is that we need to be really inclusive with respect to the people who are, you know, able to access these opportunities. And um, I care a lot about access. I care a lot about, um, again, creating spaces within my university where students feel comfortable um to join in and participate despite their, whatever their level of background knowledge. Because I think very often the the sort of the barriers to entry are the idea, well, I don't know enough to say anything or I'm sort of put off, you know, oh, it's a Plato reading group. I don't know anything about Plato. And so the whole idea is to sort of create a space that says, you don't know anything about Plato? Great. <laughs> Excellent. That's exactly, neither do I, you know? So let's come together and, 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 and talk about what we don't know together, which of course is a authentically platonic activity but nevertheless I want to say you know it goes to the the I've said I'm I'm in favor of inclusion and I am I however I think I'm skeptical very often of of what passes under the label of inclusion um in a lot of contemporary debate which I think um doesn't take seriously the idea that again in the university context we're talking about intrinsically exclusionary spaces (laughs) they are elite spaces that are able to operate precisely because they don't let everyone in (laughs) So the question is, well, how can we include those who are who will make the most of the opportunity and once they're here, make them feel fully part of the community? In Mere Civility, you propose a concept of tolerance really based uh, from Roger Williams on mutual contempt rather than mutual respect is the phrase. Uh, and that seems to be a universal proposal, meaning it's something that we would want the average person to adopt, not just the Oxford student. Um, what is the the theory of change that allows us to move the needle towards a society in which we can disagree disagreeably? Uh, how do we? I, I assume the average person is not going to pick up mere civility directly read it and be persuaded. So how do we get from the the concept you propose uh, to the real world Delta? Mm. It's a really good question. And it's one that I, you know, sort of tear my hair about out about sometimes. There are a couple things to say. I mean, the first is that I've made a point since the book was published, and I've been supported in this by Harvard University Press to try to write public-facing um, articles in major national newspapers um, to, you know, sort of get beyond the ivory tower in distilling the message, et cetera. I mean, it's another reason why I think I focused on a particular person as an exemplar as opposed to making a sort of theoretical argument. I think that certainly I understand better when I'm thinking about particular people, particular lives, and deciding whether or not to take a particular person as a, as a model. 
I'm committed to accepting a wide variety of invitations. So I've spoken to kind of uh, state legislators. You know, I, I do try to sort of get out there and sort of speak to audiences who wouldn't necessarily read the book. Now, that being said, the audiences that I get to speak to in all of those contexts are nevertheless elite art audiences. So there is an element of this which is um, trying to focus on people who are lucky enough to be in positions of leadership themselves. Now, so let's put scare quotes around leadership because I hate the term leadership, but people who are in positions of authority, um, esteem, honor, etc., and to get them to kind of think of themselves as exemplars um, to others. But on the other hand, I mean, I, I think, again, it's sort of, you asked about uh, the mechanisms here. It's certainly since I moved from the University of Toronto to Oxford, I guess, seven years ago now, um, I've become extremely aware of the quite short pipeline between Oxford and sort of elite circles in the United Kingdom. I mean, the United Kingdom is this really small country here. And actually, there's it seems like everybody in a position of power actually knows everybody. They've all, you know, and that's a huge problem. And it's some something that, you know, I think uh Certainly my university is committed to uh, working against. Um, nevertheless, you know, I do sort of think for the three years that we've got these PPE students who, you know, before they go into journalism, civil service or politics or finance to um, bend their ears a bit and and get them to, uh, to yeah, take seriously this, this idea. Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Kamatir, my favorite coffee, not just for its exceptional taste, but for its unique aesthetic. Kamatir comes straight to your door as ice cubes, which you can then melt in hot water and have immediately as a hot cup of coffee. It tastes even fresher than if a cup were made for you at your local coffee shop. I highly recommend getting a box. Use the link kamatir.com Zohar to get $20 off your first order. Let's say that every single person that you teach is persuaded by your argument that um, they need to be tougher when they hear something they don't like, uh, you know, provided that that it's not hate speech, pro- provided that it's just this is a person with a different view. And so people you know, nod their heads and they say, you know what, this this makes sense. I think society would be better if we could all be more resilient. But when they're processing that, concept it's coming through the brain it's well it's coming through the through the rational faculty whereas so much of uh heated conversation kind of fires us up emotionally and it's not so easy to call upon reason in those moments maybe after the fact you can reflect upon it so how do you actually habituate people to the kind of forbearance that you're calling for as provided they want to be to provided they want to be in conversation, but nevertheless, who doesn't tense up when they when they hear somebody throwing uh, throwing hard, harsh words at them? Yeah, so I, I mean, certainly it's the case that I'm you know I'm a scholar, I'm making arguments, and in doing so, I'm appealing to the rational faculty. But I would say the particular argument I'm making is precisely that you know the sort of forbearance that toleration and civility require is is, is a kind of somatic. <laughs> It's it's effective and somatic. It's about actually um, cultivating tolerance of an extremely unpleasant feeling, um, the feeling of being 
disagreed with the feeling of being um, insulted. So should we practice meditation or have workshops in which people practice this this skill set so that they can get the muscle memory needed for it? Or how do you actually go from saying, you know what, this is a good idea to actually living it? My hope would be that, you know, again, I always say, well, well, civility begins at home. I mean, my hope would be that in sort of spreading the word, you know, acting as an evangelist for mere civility, then people will be able to think about particular contexts where they where they experience this kind of disagreeableness. And I mean, literally the home, right? I think that, you know, especially in the past four years, you've seen a lot of commentary about um, sort of uh, political divisions in families. I mean, certainly... I mean, not to not to get too autobiographical, but it's certainly an issue in my own life. Um, sort of how do I continue to be present and engage in the face of quite sort of profound disagreements about sort of <laughs> fundamentals um, with people that I really love and care about? Um, but, you know, so so my own view and again, you know, I, I, I sort of... Uh, sort of forthrightly navel gazing in this way is I'm a professor at an elite institution. I am in a position where I actually get to structure spaces where, you know, we can try to put some of these things into practice. Um, so, you know, I talked about my Plato reading group. I mean, that's a, that's an example of a quite, uh, a quite convivial space. I mean, we don't, it, it's, there are disagreements, but they're not sort of nasty. Everybody's sort of on the same page, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a community in, in that sense. Um, but for some of my other, um, some of the other subjects I teach, for instance, like the first year politics paper, you know, we have a, we have a session on free speech and that gets quite fractious. Uh, so again, you know, just thinking about what I would want anyone to think about, you know, not everyone is, is as privileged as I am to have this kind of position of actually being able to put these things into practice in a particular institution, but to sort of think, what are the areas in my own life where I can apply this, um, and be, you know, be an example to others. Sort of a, a mimetic theory of change that if influencers or, or heroes cultivate these virtues, then people want to be like that. And so there's a, it may, one hopes a kind of uh, leading by example. Yeah, I mean, it's delightfully old fashioned, right? I mean, we sort of like depressingly old fashioned, but I, that, I, that is my position. I mean, I'm quite um, self-aware, I think, about... Um, to go, you know, to go back to how, you know, you and I have met, encountered each other on Twitter, I'm quite self-aware about sort of how I comport myself on Twitter. Because <laughs> I know that there are students who follow me. I know that there are potential students who follow me. I know, you know, it's, uh, I think if we are in positions of trust, as professors are, we're basically office holders and office in the kind of traditional sense, there are significant duties attached and we have a duty to comport ourselves in a way that, you know, sets a good example for others. Speaking of trust, so we have had explosive population growth since the Industrial Revolution. And Luther uh, and, and Locke and Hobbes precede that sort of massive change in, in scale. Do you think that just the sheer size of the global population or uh, an American or, or Western city complicates the arguments that you're making or has any bearing on it on them vis-a-vis -vis the issue of trust. Because I think when you're in a, in a, 
when you're in a divisive community, but it's nonetheless a community, where are you going to go? Uh, but once you have just a giant cosmopolis, these people can sort of avoid one another and hole up in their apartments, and it's a lot easier to atomize. How does how does scale affect your argument? It does affect my argument. Um, so I'm interested in, again, to take the example of Roger Williams. I mean, Roger Williams is theorizing civility in the context of a small-scale struggling um, colony. Um, that you know is embattled in, in all sorts of ways, and in which uh, there were exit options. I mean, you could just pick up and move. I mean, it was the case that most of the sort of Europeans who found themselves there found themselves there because they'd been kicked out of, of other colonies. <laughs> so this they they'd already sort of exercised or been forced to exercise their option of exit, and so the idea of being thrown into community with others was really profound. So clearly, you know, when we think about trying to create a a civil society in the modern era, it's, it's, you know, harder because it's actually become easier to create sort of micro communities of the like-minded. And if you don't like, if you don't like where where you're, where you're at, you you can just leave. But on the other hand, I mean, I, I think there are, Despite the differences, there remain really important similarities, i.e., you know, we all have bodies, uh, we exist in time and space, and we, you know, end up in community with others in these kind of microways. I, one thing I, I noticed certainly as an American looking at my home country is the way in which you know, local and state government is where it's at in terms of actually affecting change and where a lot of the most important policy debates are happening. But people sort of deflect to the national precisely because of the distance, because they can kind of participate in politics entertainment and, uh, you know, feel as though they're in community with like-minded people with whom they never, they don't share a physical space. Um, And so that's the risk I think that needs to be combated, but the pandemic and um, sort of the, the rise of virtual work and all these things, I mean, also complicates it, but um, we are nevertheless, you know, stuck now with these with these human bodies, and as embodied humans, we we do encounter others face to face, and there, I think, is always the kind of site of site of civility. That reminds me, in a way, of Levinas's idea of the the face right before me, the human other, is always the source of ethics, no matter where I am, and I find that very compelling experientially. Of course, one of the criticisms of that taken to the extreme is that you end up giving a great deal of weight to serendipity um, and sort of avoiding structural questions of why this is my neighbor and not some other person. Like, what do I owe to the sweatshop worker in Bangladesh or, you know, the American who can't afford to live in my zip code? <laughs> uh, it's Of course, there's always fundamental difference and it's, it's a profound thing to encounter that. And at the same time, localism can be folksy in a way that insulates you for better and but also for worse from kind of larger questions of humanity or nation or or what have you how do you think about the balance between the local and the sort of larger picture i think i'm i'm totally uh vulnerable to that criticism for sure you know it's it's one that i i i get and it's one that i take seriously but i suppose my position is there isn't a lack of scholarship in my field on those larger <laughs> questions of humanity and global justice and 
structural injustice. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know what's lost by my not working on those questions. I think the more face-to-face localist questions are the one that interests me. I, I, I am, you know, I, I have the privilege of teaching um, the kind of the main uh, history of political thought or the sort of the, the, the most wide-ranging history of political thought paper at Oxford, which is Plato to Rousseau. And so I get to teach um, Greek political thought in, in addition to the things I actually study, so early, early modern. And um, a theme I really impress upon my students there is just the the close connection between politics and ethics. Um, and I, I do think that's something that informs my own work. So it is absolutely, you know, it's it's kind of liberal in a bad way. It's individualist. I mean, I think that I, I could rightly be accused of depoliticizing. On the other hand, though, I think I'm sort of repoliticizing. Um, you know, I, I my work is definitely in conversation with and uh, flows easily alongside with this increasingly micro-political turn in, in politics, so the politics of them. Pronouns, for instance, or um, just questions of microaggressions, these kinds of things. Um, I not I don't think those are the most important questions, but they're questions I'm interested in. And so, you know, I, I think it's okay. Not everyone can work on everything. And I don't propose, I don't, and I think this is really key. I'm very clear in mere civility that this is a book about civility and civility is not the same thing as justice. And that very often civility and justice can, the demands of civility and justice can conflict. So I, I do, I want to just push back against this idea that, you know, we need to be either talking about everything all of the time or the most important things all of the time or not talking at all. I think, think that's just really sort of anti-intellectual and defeatist. Would you agree with this sort of Isaiah Berlin take that we need to be less abs- absolutist? And so for modern liberals, we we need to balance competing goods rather than sort of say this is the end point towards which we're working because once you subordinate everything to that goal be it civility or justice or some other word with a capital letter you end up painting in two broad strokes given just the inherent complexity of of life and the fact that people have these different sets of priorities it ends up being kind of tyrannical well, I mean, I would just say I think it dissolves the problem of politics altogether. I mean, the, the problem of politics is precisely scarce resources, conflicting ends, uh, you know, competing principles. And so if you try to respond to a political problem by offering a kind of, you know, complete rational ordering of all of all values, I think you've just kind of you, you've solved the problem by dissolving it and it actually really doesn't get us anywhere closer to <laughs> to doing I mean I'm very attracted to a, an Aristotelian way of thinking about political theory as you know contemplation of politics in the abstract so as to do politics well or at least better right so that's what I'm interested in now I you know I'm I'm not a Berlinian in the sense like I'm you know I'm, I would never I'm not mine isn't a metaphysical position about value pluralism. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I guess, you know, Pache Leo Strauss, it's maybe implied in my arguments, but certainly that's not the question I'm worried about. But I, I am sort of certainly a pluralist institutionally and particularly in terms of how we think about and do political theory. And, um, the thing I will the thing I always say and will always say, and I don't think can be said enough, is that not all good things go together. 
And that's a very Berlinian point. Um, again, to go back to, you know, inclusion, to giving a talk yesterday about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the university. And I just, you know, again, we can run these words together as an acronym, but whether or not they actually go together as a kind of political program, I, you know, I'm skeptical. Just because a thing sounds good doesn't then mean it it can be combined with other good things. Um, and as a political theorist, I think I'm under an obligation to point that out and to understand why. I really appreciate this attempt to keep open a space for politics and to recognize that it's just human nature to engage in political difference and political activity as opposed to you know coming to some kind of reconciliation. And I find that idea powerfully articulated uh, by Carl Schmitt. Uh, in his critique of liberalism, he thinks that basically the, pr the problem with sort of ec economists is that they want to make political life just one domain uh, and then the rest of life is, is apolitical. And he, he kind of wants to say the whole, it's all politics. Now, he's notoriously an illiberal or an anti-liberal thinker uh, in a certain sense. And yet um, he's inspired a whole lineage of liberal thinkers who are trying to take this insight and apply it within the framework of liberal democracy. For instance, Chantal Mouffe, um, this concept of agonistic democracy. Do you, do you see your work as Schmidtian? Uh, or what would you, how would you rejoin to Schmidt? What would, what would keep you from going down the path of turning conflict itself into a virtue? Once you're saying that politics is inevitable, that's just, that's descriptive, not normative. Schmidt makes an extra jump and it's like, not only is it inevitable, but because it is, we ought to sort of embrace it as the thing that brings us glory. And the friend-enemy distinction is where it's at. I don't know if Chantal Mouffe would embrace the liberal label, but certainly certainly this kind of agonistic theory, a left Schmidtian theory of democracy is, is you know, influential and important in my field. I'm sympathetic to the... To that project, um, I think it is it is and has been a necessary corrective to you know unhelpful emphasis on consensus in political theory. Nevertheless, I don't find it satisfying. You know, I see conflict as inevitable, but I, I would not. I would resist the move to then saying conflict is also you know, as you said, making it conflict itself into a virtue, I think that's really far too easy. So I'm, you know, if I had to sort of, you know, classify my position, I mean, I might be sort of small H Hobbesian in the sense that I say, you know, this is the problem. Um, and it's a problem not permitting of solutions. I mean, Hobbes thought there were solutions, but I don't think there are solutions. Nevertheless, it's a problem permitting of mitigation. Um, and so I am interested in mitigation strategies, management strategies. And that, I think, explains to you why I find myself so at home in the realm of 17th century toleration debates. <laughs> that just strikes me as um, right. So there's another thinker who is very dear to me, uh, Hannah Arendt. And although she's often read as a Cold War liberal, 
I think there's one thing that she has in common with Schmidt, which is seeing human dignity in political life rather than seeing political life as a necessary evil uh, or something that we just have to deal with in a managerial way. And she kind of develops a, a positive conception of politics from the ancient Greeks where she thinks that political life is about appearing in the arena and revealing yourself to others um, through speech and action. And that's different than other kinds of speech and action in the private domain where you're not really revealing yourself to others. You're not getting recognition. There isn't this agonism, the struggle. Um, so not everything qualifies as speech or, or action for her in the technical sense. Only politics allows you to, to do and to, to speak and to think. And obviously, you know, that's a very weird conception of politics. And also, again, going back to scale, it's much easier to do when you're living in a small society and it's only uh, free men with leisure doing it much harder to do at scale when every single person is supposed to do it. But I find it powerful. And I'm wondering what you think of this, this idea that politics is a kind of calling or an opportunity to express dignity and not just something that we have to sort of do because it's, you know, to get along, but rather that there's a kind of inherent virtue in being political. I feel conflicted about it. Um, I should say, again, you know, since this is a space for autobiographical reflection, reading Arendt's Human Condition as an undergraduate was just one of the you know, it was a total game changer for me. I just, I really loved that book. And so I'm very, you know, I'm very attracted to that. I think, um, you know, Richard Wolin uh, notoriously accused Arendt of polis envy and, um, you know, as a sexist slur. And uh, I think, you know, sometimes I, 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 I could be accused of the same and that I am, as I said earlier, I'm really attracted to this distinctiveness of a kind of Greek, or more precisely Athenian way of thinking about politics as a distinctive and dignified area of human activity. But on the other hand, I think, and I don't, I don't know that I disagree with Arendt on that. Maybe I disagree with Arendt on this, but, but I would just say, you know, politics is something that happens not just in, not just in the polis. And there, there's a way in which, you know, me participating in the politics of my college at Oxford, for instance, which have been quite you know, fraught for a number of years, or me participating in the politics of my institution. I mean, that's also politics. That's um, me entering the, entering the ecclesia and again, trying to do good where I can. I'm, when I say I'm conflicted, um, about, you know, politics as a virtue. I do also, you know, have quite a lot of time for the liberal strategy of depoliticization. I don't think that politicizing everything to the utmost actually gets us very far. <laughs> I think Arendt would agree with that. She she believed we should depoliticize many things so that we could politicize the right things. So in in her critique, um, the 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 problem with mass culture is that, you know, in the human condition, we we enter a realm that's neither political nor domestic or that has elements of both. And that lack of clear distinction just creates a lot of cognitive dissonance and ambiguity. And I think it, it deprives us of our agency. So she she thinks that we need to be more private so that we can be more public, more public so that we can be more private. Do you Would you agree with that? Or is that kind of too neat? I think that the criticism of Rent that she neglects the political, you know, construction of private spaces. Like, I think that's fair. And I, you know, so I'm, I'm very, you know, 
you know, sympathetic to that criticism. Nevertheless, yeah, I, I do. And this is something that I, I have taken from my supervisor at Yale, Brian Garston, as well. Um, the importance of being able to, to to have spaces of retreat and of privacy from political life and having spheres of interaction that aren't I'm persuaded that the political, you know, impacts, touches kind of all areas of human life. Nevertheless, it's a choice <laughs> to then say, well, politics is the most important. Again, this, you know, this idea where we're presented this sort of thing, like, well, because there's po- politics in a place, you would be remiss not to focus on the politics of the place. I say, but there are other values as well. Um, the political does not exhaust the realm of human meaning. And indeed, there, you know, in order for us to, as you say, have a functional politics, be able to get things done and work together to do it, I think that does often require on the idea that there are spaces of respite um, from politics. And again, I mean, you say, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I am a kind of a Rentian too on that, and 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 including in the unfashionable ways. From a religious point of view or Jewish point of view, I think of Sabbath when you say respite. I think of the six days shall you labor, but on the seventh day shall you rest. And that there's something in the concept of Sabbath that is a, a break from the political. Obviously, you know, politics doesn't stop. The world doesn't stop on the seventh day. But some have the custom of not speaking about political matters or things that agitate them on the day of rest, meaning it's a day not just to refrain from physical labor, but also from kind of mental labor. And I'm wondering, kind of, I, I'm very partial to this. How do we create more of a culture of Sabbath in that broad sense so that we're not taking away, we're not telling people, look, don't labor six days a week. We're just saying, we, you know, we need to also see a, a profundity to taking a break from that. And um, is, it, is it a question of reading groups or uh, certain creating certain experiences where the norm is, this is different? Mm. It's, it's so funny. You know, I just have to laugh because, um, yeah, it, it's something that I have had to learn and I'm still in the process of learning. You know, so I'm in a position where, um, you know, I'm in an industry, academic, that lends itself to workaholism already. And then by the same token, my discipline within the academy is politics. <laughs> so, um there's a way in which uh yeah the drive to be always kind of doing both has been really strong and I'm I'm an ambitious person so you know I I I will confess very openly that you know work life balance is not something that I've had and it's something that I struggle to to get um but again that's a slightly different question yeah I I think that the idea of rest and respite to imposing limits is really important because there is this kind of totalizing logic of of politicization um that will you know suck up everything if it can and boundaries are important in relationships and boundaries are important in order for you know having space to live a kind of ethical and deliberate life um how do we cultivate it Really, I don't know. I mean, the the only way this is something again. Frankly, I'll just say I I really have struggled with, and and the way that I found is that you know finally I have a a part. I'm I'm recently married, and you know one of the wonderful things about my husband is precisely that he helps me cultivate an awareness about the need for this kind of respite and 
<laughs> you know, he'll do things for me, like lock me out of Twitter, which is really helpful. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's been a good learning experience for me to sort of realize, oh, right, I am not sufficient unto myself. I do need help and I can ask for help. And um, having loved ones help me to create the space for the kind of life I want to live is really, really important. I don't think we can do it alone. That's a beautiful reflection. And it uh, it speaks to the importance of collaboration or other for forms of, I guess in, in Judaism, it's called chavrutaship, but um, sort of some mutual support where the other helps you see something about yourself that you couldn't see by yourself. Genesis says it's not good for a person to be alone. And that's a very different model of being with than, let's say, the Hegelian <laughs> the Hegelian story of a, fight, a struggle for recognition based on a fight to the death or Hobbes' story of the state of nature where we all fear one another and you know not even a power a, 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 a muscular person is safe because a gang of people can can get him in the night actually we can, can I say, so my favorite so that's the famous illustration of this is of course the war of all against all in leviathan but my my, fa- my favorite uh illustration of this um the the anti-social nature of man from hobbes actually comes from de Kive, where he describes a kind of dinner party <laughs> how nobody wants to be you know so he says look 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 at how we act nobody wants to be the first to leave a dinner party because they know the second they leave everyone is going to talk shit about them (laughs) this is proof of the antisocial nature of man (laughs) there's a lot there i would want to put hobbs on the couch for that thank you so much for your time and insight i enjoyed the conversation yeah thank you great questions Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, zoharatkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.